51 at verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. We find ourselves in our studies in the life of David at the 17th chapter of 2 Samuel. And I wish to read a portion from that chapter, beginning at verse 1. Moreover, Ahithophel said unto Absalom, Let me now choose out 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue after David this night. And I will come upon him while he is weary and weak-handed, and will make him afraid. And all the people that are with him shall flee, and I will smite the king only, and I will bring back all the people unto thee. The man whom thou seekest is as if all returned, so all the people shall be in peace. And the saying pleased Absalom well, and the elders, all the elders of Israel. Paul has <clears throat> reminded us in Corinthians with reference to a particular narrative in the Old Testament, but I believe, and I think that we all understand that it applies to the narratives, all the narratives in the Old Testament and the, the lives of the people of that economy, but he said these words in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. These things happened unto them by way of example. He was speaking immediately of those in the wilderness and so on, and the ramifications of that account. But I believe, <clears throat> as I've already said, that it applies very much to the entire Old Testament the narratives, the lives of the Old Testament saints. And I find that in the 51st Psalm, David's famous, if you will, Psalm of repentance, crying unto God against thee and thee only have I sinned. And we remember that in the 12th chapter of 2 Samuel that after his sin and after the Lord sent Nathan to him, to bring him to repentance with that parable about that one little ewe lamb that David was angry and said that man shall surely pay or shall surely die and Nathan probably pointing his finger at David in unequivocal terms said thou art the man but he went ahead and pronounced the judgment of God after he told him by God's grace and through God's announcement, if you will, that his sin was forgiven. But he was going to be chastised. And we've been looking for some weeks now 
at the chastening hand of God upon the life of David, beginning uh, with the death of that illegitimate son, illegitimate son of David and Bathsheba, and then just, if you will, exponentially accelerating and a domino effect, if you will. Uh, it's horrific to reflect on the chastening hand of God upon David with regard to, to Amnon, with regard to Absalom now, desiring to, after murdering Amnon, and then coming back and being allowed to come back and, and now rebelling against his own father, not just only his own father, but God's appointed and anointed king over his people. Absalom is defying not only David, his father, but he's defying God. At any rate, these chastenings that we've been looking at, we can imagine that David wrote that 51st Psalm prior to most of these chastenings, if not all of them. But he says, he says in that psalm, he says, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. Then will I teach, after thou hast done these things, after I have been restored to thy joy, the joy of thy salvation, and, and after I'm being upheld with a willing spirit. Then he says, Will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee? I think that we can safely say that David has taught many sinners. He's taught transgressors the way of God through his Psalms. But can we imagine that he wasn't doing that with his life, that he wasn't doing that with his lips after this, after this uh, recovery? pronounced by Nathan and after that marvelous penitential psalm can we can we imagine that he wouldn't have been doing these things and in a passive way perhaps teaching transgressors the way of God even by witnessing the chastening hand of God upon the man after his own heart Surely the faithful in Israel, surely the true believers in Israel, many of his close companions recognizing that this was the hand of God upon him. And David had pronounced that himself. But they're witnessing all these chastenings and they're being taught. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways and sinners shall be converted unto thee. The chastening of the Lord was the method that God employed. And we can presume that David had not asked God for such a method to be employed. He had asked for none of these things, although we have witnessed numerous times that he, in reality, and as it were, said, Lord, thy will be done. We're reminded of Shimei's cursing him. And when Abishai wanted to take off Shimei's head, David said, no, 
Let him talk. The Lord's put those words, if I can paraphrase, the Lord's put those words in his mouth. David knew that he was a bloody man, even though he wasn't the bloody man, according to the imaginations of Shimei. But he knew the course of his chastening was an example for teaching. It was an example. God was making an example of him. We just read about the counsel of Ahithophel after that incredibly wicked counsel that he gave Absalom about lying with David's concubines. We now begin this chapter and it begins, moreover, Ahithophel said, and this is additional counseling, but I wanna just run over very swiftly the occasions that we read about in 2 Samuel regarding Ahithophel. You remember in the 15th chapter that Absalom sent for Ahithophel, the Gilonite, David's counselor. And after he had done that, we read that one told David saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And how this struck the king's heart. It struck his heart in sadness it struck his mind with fear. But he immediately responded, crying to God, O Jehovah, I pray thee, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. And then we read that Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem and Ahithophel with them, with him. Then Absalom to Ahithophel, said to Ahithophel, Give your counsel what we shall do. And, and we've already mentioned the counsel about the concubines. And then we read the counsel of Ahithophel uh, regarding what he would do now after he has, in effect, set himself up as the successor to David. He has done with his concubines. He has done that in order to demonstrate that there is no possible chance of reconciliation with David. After what he did, it removed any possibility of reconciliation with his father. And that was the point, whether it was the point that Absalom had in mind or whether it was simply following Ahithophel's counsel and it was the point that Ahithophel had in mind that this would set aside any possibility, and it would set that possibility aside in the minds of all Absalom's followers, that they would know that there's no way that Absalom can ever be reconciled with David, and they would have no more concern, if they had any, about there being a reconciliation, and then they would be caught in the middle, perhaps, after a reconciliation. So the counsel in chapter 17, Ahithophel tells him to take 12,000, which was a relatively small number, and to go, and even to let Ahithophel go, not even telling Absalom to go, but in order that they can find the king right away, swiftly, in other words, strike while the iron is hot, and kill the king only. Ahithophel saying, in effect, I will kill 
the king only. You remember how that he wanted vengeance against David for what he had done to his granddaughter and his granddaughter's husband, Uriah. I will smite the king only. Why should we sacrifice all these men? And then David's men will come. When they see their king dead, they will come back and they will become your people as well, Absalom. And we're told that the saying pleased Absalom well and all the elders of Israel. They liked what they heard from Ahithophel. Remember, we were told that that his words were as though he was speaking the oracle of God or from the oracle of God. The people that listened, some of them, many of them perhaps imagined that Ahithophel was speaking for God. But then we read, and when Hushai, remember Hushai was sent back to Jerusalem to be something of a mole among Absalom and the people that had followed Absalom. Then Ahithophel, we're told, came to Absalom. Absalom spake unto him, saying, Ahithophel has spoken after this manner. Shall we do after his saying? After this manner. In other words, he explained to Hushai what what counsel Ahithophel had given. What do you think about this, Hushai? And Hushai, with great boldness, said, the counsel that Ahithophel hath given thee this time is not good. And then Ahithophel gave, or excuse me, Hushai gave his counsel what he thought that Absalom should do. And we read that as we go on in the 17th, 17th chapter. I won't read all that right now. But basically he said, you know how, what a bold fighter your father is. And how dominant he is. And the men that are with him, his special forces, if you will, that are with him, they're not going to give up without a really, really strong fight. And they'll probably whip some of your men. They'll probably lay for ambush and, and strike and kill a good number of your men, and that'll put fear in the hearts of the rest of them, and they'll flee. So he set this picture before Absalom of defeat at the hands of David if he goes now. And Absalom bought it hook, line, and sinker. He bought it. You compare the two councils of Hushai and Ahithophel, and you say, what was Absalom thinking that he believed that Hushai's counsel was better. But Absalom, we read, and all the men of Israel said, the counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For, for Jehovah had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel to the intent that Jehovah might bring evil upon Absalom. It was God's design. It was God's plan. These conflicting counsels, Ahithophel's and Hushai's, were reported subsequently to David through some spies. And then we read, and Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed. He saddled his ass and arose and got him home unto his city, 
set his house in order, and hanged himself. We see in this narrative, we have lessons. Lessons regarding God's sovereignty. The writer, whoever he was of this book, is teaching us. God, the Holy Spirit, through this writer, is teaching us about God's sovereignty, his sovereign power, his sovereign will. And he's also teaching about man's responsibility. David had prayed to God, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. And the Holy Spirit refers to Ahithophel's counsel as the good counsel of Ahithophel. In that 14th verse of chapter 17, that we already glanced at, Jehovah had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel. It was good, not good. We heard something about relative words having relative meanings and references. We heard something about that Thursday night. And here, good, this is relative. It's relative good. It's good compared to Hushai's poor counsel, but it's not good as opposed to evil. It is evil. Even as Ahithophel's counsel was evil regarding David's concubines. So this is evil. He wants to kill God's anointed. But God had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel. The question that was raised in my thinking about this was did God, in fact, turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness? That was David's prayer. Turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. This good counsel of Ahithophel. God is absolutely sovereign. Man is absolutely responsible. Ahithophel's counsel was wise. In fact, God did not do what David had asked. He did not turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Ahithophel's counsel was wise. It was good in that relative sense. Some render the sentence as make foolish the counsel of Ahithophel. God didn't do that. He didn't make it foolish. But David's prayer was answered by God, but not in the way that he would have imagined. God did not turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness, but rather he turned Absalom into a fool. He turned Absalom and his elders and those behind him into fools. But he didn't turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness. And Hushai, when he gave his Ideas as far as how he would direct Absalom to defeat David. He was appealing to the vanity of Absalom. That was his weakness. Even as pride was Ahithophel's weakness and evidently drove him to hang himself. Pride and vanity share a common feature of selfishness. 
but they're both exactly opposite of the example that we get from our Lord Jesus Christ, the meek and the lowly one. But the problem with Absalom was this pride, and this is what, this vanity rather, and this is what Hushai directed his, his advice toward. Wait until you've got a great multitude, a huge army, largest army that has ever been seen, and then you ride at the front of it. You get on this great white charger and, and get some plumes on your hat, and you ride and you charge in, leading this incredibly huge army and defeat David. This appealed to Absalom's vanity. You remember how at the beginning, I believe, of chapter 15, when the rebellion first began to be demonstrated, that, that one of the first things Absalom did was to get him chariots and 50 horsemen to ride or men to run before him. All that vanity he was demonstrating, that didn't uh, pass the view of Hushai. He didn't overlook that. He knew what a vain man Absalom was, so he was appealing to that vanity. Absalom ate it all up. Oh, yes, I'll be on top of this huge white charger with my sword and my shield blazing and the sun glinting off my helmet. And I will charge with this huge multitude of soldiers following me. This was sort of the problem with Naaman the Syrian, wasn't it? We, we wonder how in the world did Absalom follow that? And we see that it was because of his vanity, because of issues within his own mind and heart. In Absalom's case, vanity. But you remember Naaman, the Syrian officer that came. And he had so much to to be thankful for and so much to even boast of. And the scripture said, but he was a leper. And some little Jewish maiden in his household, a servant, told him about a man in Israel. Just go there. And that man is the Lord's prophet and he can heal you. And so Naaman went off to meet Elisha. And Elisha told him, you go in Jordan and you bathe and you come out again and you'll be clean. And Naaman said, what? He, he expected that being this great Syrian general that he would be directed to do something fantabulous in order to be healed. And what, you want me to go into that dirty Jordan River? What good is that? We've got better rivers in Syria. And he was angry and he turned to go back and one of his men said, if he had asked you to do something simple, wouldn't you have done it? What's, what's the deal? We come. Anyway, he finally sub submitted, submitted to the directions that he was given and he came up out of the Jordan and he was cleaned, cleansed from his leprosy. David had prayed, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. And here we see Absalom being turned into a fool. God heard David's plaintive cry. God answered his prayer. God is always faithful. He answered the prayer, but 
not necessarily the way that David might have imagined, nor really the way that he had asked, but in his own way. God has not only ordained every event, but also he has ordained every circumstance bringing about that event. He is sovereign. He ordains every means to attain to attain the goals that he has ordained. And it seems that there's a lesson here for us that we do not, we are not to dictate to God in prayer. I know, I know it can be so subtle and we don't mean it, we don't really mean it. But we have to be careful. David was dictating to God in prayer. But God in his wonderful mercy spared him in spite of that and without using the means that, God, that David had that suggested or dictated, if you will. God spared him. As I said, he turned Absalom into a fool to listen to Hushai's counsel. God heard David's prayer, but he answered it in his own way, in God's own way. As I said, he turned Absalom into a fool. And Hushai appealed to the vanity in Absalom's heart. And he won the day, if we can put it that way. We do not dictate to God the methodology, the means, the circumstances, the details of his response to our needs. We find in the New Testament, numerous occasions in the life and the teaching and the preaching and the ministering, the healing performed by Christ. We find in Matthew 9:27 two blind men that came to Christ. And Christ, if I can paraphrase, I'm going to. Christ said, Christ said, what would you have me to do? They just said, oh Lord, that we might receive our sight. That we might receive our sight. They didn't tell them how to do it. They just told them what their desire was. They just told God manifested in the flesh what their want was, what their desire was, what their wishes were. Jesus touched their eyes and they were opened. He simply healed. He simply healed. He healed a dumb and, and, a, and a blind man. He simply healed him so that he spake and saw. That's in Matthew 12, 22. He, he touched some people's eyes, but it wasn't at their direction. It was by his sovereign choice to touch their eyes and give them sight. These blind that we've referenced, they never attempted to tell Christ how or what to do. In Mark 8, 22, the, the, the blind asked Jesus to touch him. His friends asked him to touch him, to touch this, this blind man. And yes, we read that he laid his hands on him. However, he spit on his eyes first. 
He spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him. And then again, this is that miracle that some refer to as the second touch. He laid his hands on him again because he was only seeing trees like they were men walking. Or men like they were trees walking, I should say. So he touched him again, and then he could see clearly. But he didn't do what they had told him. He spit on his eyes first. And we can look through the scriptures. We can look through the scriptures and in, in, in the prayers and the and the, and the desires expressed to Jesus Christ, and in prayers directed to God, even others in the Old Testament. I don't pretend that I searched the prayers and the scriptures exhaustively, but I did extensively. And I didn't, I couldn't find any prayer where anyone, anyone outside of David here, anyone, that tried to tell God how to do something or, or tell him what the best means to use would be. Oh, go to this hospital. Oh, go to that doctor. Oh, have him do this. Have him check out this. Nothing like that at all. And we remember, we remember one, particularly in John chapter 9, that man that we're quite familiar with that was born blind. Once I was blind, but now I see. We're quite familiar with that account. But he only, he only, he didn't even say anything. Christ just knew that he was blind and he is, his disciples said, had he done some sin that he was blind? And Jesus just told his disciples, this man was blind in order to promote the glory of God. And when he had thus spoken, we read that he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle. Nobody suggested that to him. Nobody prayed, oh Lord, spit on this dust here and make some clay and put it on my eyes so I can see. No, he just, he just was blind. And Christ knew without him speaking a word that he would desire, he would love to have his sight. And so he spit on the ground, made clay of the spittle, and anointed his eyes with the clay, and said unto him, Go and wash in the pool of Siloam. He went away therefore and washed and came seeing. It even seems that Christ has honored these for not having attempted to tell him how to give them sight. We see people being brought to life. Jairus came up to Christ. You remember that ruler Jairus in Mark 5. He said, I pray thee that thou come and lay thy hands on my daughter that she may be made whole and live. And as they were walking there, his, some of his servants came and told Jairus, don't bother the master. Your daughter's dead. Jesus virtually, to simplify it, just ignored them. Let's go to the house. Did he lay hands on her as Jairus had asked? No. He simply spoke the word. Damsel, I say unto thee, arise. And she rose up. She that was dead. In the case of the, the son of the widow of Nain. In Luke 7. Nothing at all was asked of Christ there either. 
Jesus just, we're told, had compassion on the widow. Her husband was dead. That's why she was called a widow. And now her only son. They were carrying him out of the city on a bier. And Jesus just walked over, having compassion on the widow. Nobody suggested anything for him to do, that he should do this or that. And here again, he just spoke the word. Young man, arise. And the young man sat up, was restored to life. And of course, we think of Lazarus. And you remember the dialogue that Martha had with Jesus and Mary had with Jesus. If you were here, Lord, if you were here, he wouldn't have died. They didn't try to tell him what to do or how to do it, much less. And he simply said, roll back the stone. He prayed to God the Father, admitting that he was doing it for the sake of those that could hear around, that they would know that he was doing the will of God the Father. But he simply again spoke the words, Lazarus, come forth. And here came this man that had been dead for four days. Martha had said he stinks already. It's been four days. And he comes walking out. Still in the, in the wrappings, the grave clothes. Jesus said, take them off. Take them off of him. Jesus just spoke the word. Nobody told him how or what to do. The way of the Lord is perfect. God is sovereign. God is absolutely sovereign and all-powerful and omniscient. He knows all things, and we confess that, that God is omniscient, that he knows all things. Well, what are we doing telling him how to do this or how to do that? What are we doing like David telling him, turn, asking him, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness? David, just tell him what your problem is and let him do what he wants the way he wants to do it. We know that to them that love God, all things work together for good, Paul has written. And in Corinthians, he wrote, let no man deceive himself. If any man thinketh that he is wise among you in this world, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he that taketh the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knoweth the reasonings of the wise, that they are vain. He doesn't need for men to tell him how to do something. Just pray. Just set the need before God. Plead, God, that I might have my sight. God, have mercy on me, a sinner, the publican said. Two key factors here, as we've already alluded to. God is sovereign. We, we don't need to dictate to him how to accomplish his designs. And he is all wise. This means not only that he knows what to do, but that what he does, as we read Romans 8, 28, what he chooses to do, the method he chooses, the means that he uses will be for our best. We don't need to inform him how to do something or what to do. And at the bottom of the matter 
we should always and will be always asking, hopefully, that God's will would be done for his glory and for the exaltation of Jesus Christ. Leave the details to God. Simply, simply drop off the prescription at the pharmacy, if I can make an illustration, and let God fill it. Better yet, better yet, just tell him of the symptoms. Cry unto him with your need what the problem is. Jehovah, Ahithophel is joined Absalom. Have mercy on me. Don't tell him what to do. Tell him of the symptoms. Let him write the prescription and fill it. We don't prescribe to God the methods that he should use. But looking at the wonderful, the wonderful reality of God's sovereignty, what possessed Absalom to call for Hushai? just out of the blue light in, in 17.5. Then said Absalom, call now Hushai the archite. Let us hear what he has to say. Why do you do that? When we read about Hushai coming into Absalom's camp, it, it sounds like Absalom's a little suspicious. Aren't you David's friend? What are you doing here? And yet now he's saying, let's hear what Hushai has to say. It's like the suspicion was all removed. I wonder who removed it. It looks like somebody put the idea in Absalom's mind to call for Hushai. Who did that, I wonder? It looked like he opened his ear to give attention to Hushai, not only Absalom's ear, but all his elders and all the company around him. I wonder who did that. What possessed Absalom to call for Hushai the archite? God possessed Absalom to call for Hushai the archite. God did it. It's similar to in, in Esther, that whole account of the salvation of the Jews uh, through the plot, the plotting of Haman. How did the thing all start to get stirred up where Archelaus was, was reminded about Mordecai being instrumental in his being delivered from a couple of would-be assassins of the king? One night, we're told, one night in Esther chapter 6, the king couldn't sleep. Well, I wonder who caused that he couldn't sleep. Who stirred up his mind or whatever, his body or whatever, that he couldn't sleep. And so he asked a servant, bring me the record book. I can read something. Maybe I'll fall back to sleep. And he's reading the record books, and he sees about what Mordecai had done. And he said, was this man ever rewarded? And the whole thing evolved into the deliverance of the Jews and the hanging of Haman. All because the king couldn't sleep that night. Well, who brought that about? God did. The heart of the king, we read in Proverbs 21.1, the heart of the king is in his hand. He turns it whithersoever he will. He turned, God turned Absalom, the pretended king, into a fool. The plan of Ahithophel seemed just right to Absalom. It's just right. Like Goldilocks. Oh, that porridge is just right. Oh, that bed, that chair is just right. Oh, that bed is just right. Absalom's like a fool, says, oh, Hushai's counsel is just right. I'm going to jump up and do that. 
Each of these things suited his frame, that frame of vanity that Hushai recognized. And who enabled Hushai to recognize that? God did. God turned Absalom into a fool. Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the counsel of Hushai the archite is better. For Jehovah had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel, the, the wiser counsel of Ahithophel. Let's word it like that. God turned Absalom's heart away from the counsel of Ahithophel. Do we know better? Do we know better than God when we would prescribe to him how to accomplish something? Are we pretending that we know better than God? Do you remember in Job 34, 38, 4 rather, and following how that God finally answered Job? How did he answer him? Out of the whirlwind. That should have gotten Job's attention. I'm sure it did. But all throughout that book, which is quite enigmatic, I admit, but all throughout that book, Job is seeking to justify himself. And even his supposed friends are opposing that, but they don't, they don't know anything much more than Job. And yet, finally, Jehovah answers Job out of the whirlwind, and he says, where wast thou? When I laid the foundations of the earth, and he goes on <coughs> describing, you know, where were you when the angels sang from heaven? When the angels sang over the creation, where were you? What part did you have in it? Did I ask you for help in creating all these things? Did I ask you for advice? For your counsel? Of course not. Of course not. We can go on and on. Through the scriptures, Hezekiah, you remember his plight, and he turned his face to the wall when he was told, when he was told that he was going to die. He had a sickness. He turned his face to the wall, cried unto God, and wept. And God sent his servant back in, Isaiah, to tell him that the Lord had given him 15 more years. And then Isaiah told him to take a plaster of figs and put it on the boil. Evidently, that was the problem that was going to kill him. God never, God never dictated the means. He evidently did to Isaiah, though. But what I'm saying is that Hezekiah never said, Lord, could you bring a, a plaster of figs for this boil? He didn't, he didn't even imagine dictating to God how to cure him, how to heal him. Read, the, read Jacob praying for deliverance from Esau. You remember how fearful he was when he was returning. And he knew Esau was coming to meet him. And you remember how angry Esau would have been. Esau sought to kill him. We read earlier in the book of Genesis because of Jacob's deception and so on. His duplicity. And here comes Jacob back and he's crying unto God to deliver him from Esau. He didn't dictate, read that in Genesis 32. He didn't dictate to God how to do that and how did God choose to do it? He dealt with Esau's heart. Esau had no more anger anymore. He wanted to get along with Jacob and everything was fine. So the prayer was answered. J Jacob didn't dictate to him, you know. 
bring me an army to fight Esau or any, any other such thing. He just prayed unto God and set his fear before him. Jonah in the belly of the whale in that psalm that he iterates in the second chapter of Jonah, crying, the billows, the waves go over me, and he's describing his plight. But he doesn't tell God what to do. He doesn't say, could you bring some fisherman along to hook this fish and bring him up and reach in and pull him? No, he caused the, the great fish to vomit him out on land. He didn't need Jonah to tell him how to do or what to do. In many, many examples, we can look at the Lord's Prayer. That example that the disciples were given, nothing in there. Nothing in there about telling God how to do anything. Give us, Lord, our daily bread. He doesn't say, you know, you need to give me a good job down the street. They're hiring down there. You need to, you need to deal with the heart of that, that home resource guy at that plant so I get a job so I can have my daily bread for my family. Yeah, tell him anything like that. Just crying to God. Lord, give us our daily bread. You can read Ezra and Nehemiah and Daniel, those Psalms of the Old Testament that are all in the ninth chapter of those books. And what you see in those books and those prayers of those men is confession and praise and thanksgiving and setting their knees before God but not telling him how to do it. Not even imagining to dictate to prescribe. God is omniscient and sovereign. He knows and he loves us and he will appoint what is best. David again from that 51st Psalm. That's what he's doing. is praising. Praising, thanking, confessing and saying my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. My mouth shall show forth thy praise. God is sovereign. We are responsible. Absalom was responsible for all his folly, for all his wickedness, for all his sin. He was responsible for that as well as that folly. God sovereignly turned his heart to answer David's prayer in spite of David having tried to prescribe the method. God is absolutely sovereign. In all his ways, an omniscient, he knows. He desires us to come before him and, and ask for his mercy. Cry unto the Father of mercies, in whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. And he will prescribe the answer. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank Thee and praise Thee for Thy goodness and mercy, Thy sovereign grace, Thy sovereign power, Thy sovereign love, Thy sovereign mercy. O oh Lord our God, Thou hast caused us to understand through the gift of faith and the Scriptures and God the Holy Spirit leading us. You, thou hast caused us to understand, O oh Lord our God, that we belong unto Thee that we are thy children, thou hast given us the spirit of adoption, and so we cry unto the Abba, Father. 
Continue, O Lord our God, to direct all our ways unto the praise of thy glory and the exaltation of our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask through his name. Amen. Just stand, please, for the benediction from 2 Corinthians 13. <clears throat> the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.